This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is D.L. Byron. You're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. In 1980, songwriter D.L. Byron was asked to pen the theme song for a New York cult film whose double album soundtrack represented a who's who of the punk and new wave music world. Byron responded by writing a song called Shadows of the Night, but upon hearing it, the movie's producers turned it down. So Byron submitted Shadows for inclusion on his second album on Arista Records, but the record company president, who had built a reputation on his ability to spot a hit, deemed the song too uncommercial for release. Undeterred, Byron began pitching the song to other artists. Thanks to his perseverance, Shadows of the Night would soon become a multi-platinum success in both Germany and the U.S., and the biggest-selling song of his career. Let's listen to Byron's early, full-blown demo of Shadows of the Night. Oh, it's a cold world For the restless and the young They say slow down It's a showdown But our time will surely come The hungry hunter D.L. Byron, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hi, Dave. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. For your first album on Arista Records, This Day and Age, you were produced by Jimmy Iovine, who had engineered on Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run and Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, and he produced Patti Smith's Easter album. Not a bad start for you in the recording business, eh? No, he was just coming off of uh, DM the Torpedoes, Tom Petty's record, when, when he started my record. Some of the things that you've written about are the traps of the music business, but having a head start like that seems like it's a pretty good way to go. It was bittersweet in a lot of ways, but uh, you know, most of it was sweet. Music business is not known for being the most upstanding, honest, and you know, straightforward business. So there's always going to be what we call sometimes in the industry weasels, you know, people Mm -hmm. who just who just sort of take advantage of you or, or don't really look out for you or, you know, things like that. So, you know, I sort of had my share of that too. Now, it seems like there's creators and then there's people who make their money off creators. It's a fair statement. Yeah. It is mutually beneficial, I suppose, to both parties. But, um, I mean, I've heard of artists getting really out of hand too. And then, of course, you've heard of, you know, executives and managers and lawyers and people like that getting greedy and out of hand as well. So, I mean, you know, It happens on both ends, I guess. Sure. Now, I've seen two different accounts on the Internet about how Shadows of the Night came to be. One of them says that the song was explicitly written for the movie called Times Square, and the other says that it was written for a second album that Arista didn't accept. Yeah, they're they're both true. Uh, After the album was completed, um, 
and we were off off the road and everything, and everything was sort of settling down. Uh, Jimmy Iving called me up and he said, "Listen, I'm working on this film soundtrack, and um, I'd like you to write the theme song." And it was the Stigwood film uh, Times Square, and Stigwood, of course, was known for having done uh, Saturday Night Fever. This was supposed to be the sort of the punk version of Saturday Night Fever. The theme song. That's how he worded it, huh? Yeah, he wanted it to be the opening theme song. Yeah. At that point, I was pretty disillusioned with all that had happened between Jimmy and my manager and Clive Davis and all these people. And I, I just I didn't really know what to do. But, you know, I felt like he was reaching out to me as, in a way to sort of try to make up for some of the stuff that happened. And mm-hmm. uh, and I just said, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I went home and within 20 minutes, I had written the song. It just sort of, one of it was one of those songs that just came through me. You know, I didn't have to work on it at all. I didn't I didn't craft it. So you hadn't seen the film? No, he just he just gave me the plot line and said, you know, it's about a rich girl, poor girl. They run away together and hide on the pier in New York City and they start communicating with this late night DJ who was played by Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, well, sounds all right. So I went home and wrote the song, made a, a really simple demo of it, played it for him. He loved it. And uh, we made a, a, a more full blown demo. Uh, and I was, I still had a two album deal with Arista. So I turned the song in or the demo that we had just completed to uh, Clive. And he said, no, oh, this is not commercial. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I got kind of like, you know, upset, I guess. Um, and, uh, and then Jimmy calls me and, and tells me that, look, you know, we're trying our, our damnedest, but we can't figure out how to fit this into the movie would you meet me and come into the studio? And, and I just want to talk to you. And I said, sure. And we sat down and he said, I want you to listen to this. And it was a, it was a tape of uh, Graham Parker uh, doing You Can't Hurry Love in some club in England. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, can you cop this? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And so we, that's what I ended up doing for the, uh, the album, for the uh, movie soundtrack, a remake of the Holland Dozier and Holland song. So let's talk about Times Square a little bit. This is a movie that's produced by Robert Stigwood, who was responsible for not only Saturday Night Fever, which was, you know, gigantic, but Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was kind of a mess. And, and here's a movie that he thought, by expanding the soundtrack into a double LP, that it would make it more viable. And you write what is supposed to be the title song, and it's rejected. David Bowie was commissioned to do a song for the movie, but the record company wouldn't let the producers use it. XTC had a song on the soundtrack, Joe Jackson. And this was a big deal. And um, you ended up having to do a cover. But here's a movie that, while it got 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think of it? It was pretty bad. Um, I remember going to um, the opening uh, here in New York, and everybody was there. Uh, Paul Simon was there. Lou Reed was there. Oh, he, I think Lou was on the album. And, you know, as, as far as the, the actual soundtrack went, that was a really good party record for a lot of college people, I think, because everybody was on it. You know, Talking Heads was on it, just like you said, Patti Smith was on it, uh, XTC, a lot of people were on that record. So you could just put that record on and just, you know, get at least like almost an hour of, you know, a party out of it. But the film was just got awful. It was terrible. I mean, they left in lines like the main character uh, played by Robin Johnson. And I forget the character's name. Um, I'm going to brain your blows out. <laughs> they left it in. They left it in. 
I'm going to brain your blows out. (laughs) So, you know, stop right there. It's like, you know, they, um, they get to really mess it up, but. I read that Tim Curry, they got him attached to it, but he did his, he recorded his whole part in two days. That's entirely possible. He, He was only in one place. It was only like one set for him. So, um, it's a teenage angst in New York type thing. Yeah, it was rich girl, poor girl. Yeah, the rich girl was her. Her father, I think, was the mayor or something, and um, this poor, poorish punk girl played by Robin Johnson, and it just sort of I don't know doesn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But there were just so many like technical mistakes in the movie that were just you know glaring. So um, I don't know. It was it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, after that turn down from Clive, I started to shop the song with whoever I could think of. My drummer uh, Tommy Price was going off to Germany to play with Helen Schneider. I gave him a copy, a cassette of the demo, and I said, "Here, check it out. You know, I know you weren't on the session, but but uh, you know, you might want to hear this." And he ended up playing it for Helen, and she recorded it, and it went five times platinum in Germany. That was very validating that that happened. Sure. Because it wasn't commercial. Hmm? It wasn't commercial. It was only five times platinum. <laughs> right. But in Germany, I don't know how many records that really means, but, you know. <laughs> right, right. But anyway, I got a call from Rachel Sweet's producer, Rick Chertoff. Um, she had gone from Stiff Records to a deal on Columbia. And mm-hmm. I walked into the studio. They wanted to talk to me, and they were interested in recording the song. They wanted to change a few lyrics, and they wanted half of the publishing. I said, well, you can change some of the lyrics in the verse if you want, you know, here and there, but I'm not going to give you half of the publishing. It's already hit in Germany. So I just turned around and walked out. And they ended up recording it. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it pretty much didn't go that far. Uh, and what happened after that? Um, I think Randy Van Warmer recorded it. And all during this time, I was sort of shopping it around. And I had taken a... Uh, a meeting with uh, this a and guy that I knew at, at Chrysalis Records, which was Benatar's label. Uh, and uh, so I, I played him, I think I played him Palin's version and I played, the, played him the original demo, which Dino Dinelli actually played drums on, which was spectacular, by the way. Mm. Um, and um, he seemed to like it. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it to Pat, you know, and, uh, and I had forgotten about that whole meeting. I was like nine months later, I'm at home in my apartment in the village and my phone rings, and it's the same A&R guy um, from Chrysalis and saying, I think we got her to do it. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, we signed off on that, and uh, next thing I knew, it was on the radio, and then next thing I knew, it was like top five and was like going like multi-platinum. You said, oh, well, it's a cold world when you keep it all to yourself. I said you can't hide on the inside All the pain you've ever felt Ransom my heart, but baby, don't look back Cause we got nobody else 
years, then she won a Grammy for, for Best Female Rock Vocal. So uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty wild. When Rachel Sweet recorded the song, she just changed a few lyrics here and there. It wasn't like a major thematic thing or like a whole verse, right? Yeah, it was just a few things she wanted to add. Um, and, um, you know, I, what she did was, I guess, maybe interesting. I didn't think it was that, like spectacular, but it, it is what it is. But it caused a little bit of ruckus with uh, Benatar recording it and not crediting her for the lyrics that Benatar used that were sweets. Is that uh, true? Yeah, I had heard that there was a problem with that. Of course, I was not responsible for that. Of course not. You recorded a uh, single with three versions of the song, and this was done more recently, right? not in the time it was written. Was the demo that's on there the original demo, or is it just demo version, demos? The, the demo that's on there is the original full-blown demo that I did with Jimmy and Dino Dinelli playing drums. And there are countless other great musicians on that recording, and I can't remember any of their names right now, but <laughs> it, it, was, it was just this, like a who's who of uh, studio musicians. Because my band had basically disbanded. And as I said, Tommy Price went to play with Helen in Germany, and my bass player went off to play with uh, Willie DeVille. Um, everybody just split up and went different directions. Mm -hmm. I think the demo version is the one that sort of sounds a little bit Bruce Springsteen-y with the suspended piano chords and the tenor sax solo. Yeah. I mean, even your vocal. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Then you did another version and you call that Nouvelle. The hungry hunter, he makes his love with the barrel of a gun. And then you did a third version that's sort of singer-songwriter, acoustic guitar and harmonica. The hungry hunter, he makes his laws with the barrel of a gun. We're running through the shadows of the night. So come and take my hand, we'll be all right. And if I have to stand and brave the fight, I will win in the Yeah, that, that version was, uh, the, the acoustic version was cut live at uh, CBGB's gallery, which was next door to CBGB's. Um, and of course, they're both no longer there. But um, the gallery was more of like, more of an acoustic kind of uh, venue. And the Nouvelle version was recorded in my own studio. I like them all. And what I like about the single itself is that it almost seems like a demonstration record for people to see all the different ways the song could be recorded if they wanted to. Yeah. I love the alliteration of Valium and Vermouth. Yeah, that was one of the first things that Rachel dumped. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. But yeah, I like that. Yeah, I kind of like that too, and I didn't understand exactly why it, was, why it was cut. But A few of the artists that I've spoken to have said that they want to keep their image more on the clean side for their younger audiences, so they don't sing about cigarettes and drugs and drinking. Maybe it was something like that. No, yeah, maybe. Another couple of things about the way the song works. I love that the bass does a 
walk down during shadows. Da, 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 da. So it does a really nice uh, walk down there that supports the vocal. In which version are you talking about? Well, I guess I would think of um, Pat Benatar's for sure. Okay. So the walk down to, to walk down to the five and then back to mm -hmm. the one, you mean? Yeah. Well, it walks down from four to one and then jumps to five. So da, 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 dum, da, dum, da, dum. Mm -hmm. So there's three chords there. Right. And I, I love that. I think that really makes the song pop. Also, the two-part harmony that switches to three-part very subtly in the middle. So baby, take my hand, it'll be all right. That section has three parts. That's beautiful. Uh, the alliteration, a lot of nice things that pop in this song really make it special. Huh, yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I've never broken it down like that in, in my own head. Some people really believe that a good song is this kind of song you write really quickly, which this one was. Yeah. But also you can look back on it then afterward and say, well, why? You know, why did it reach people so well? You know, and I think some of these arrangement things, the clothes we dress a song in helps its success, you know, the singer's voice different things like that. Right. Yeah. So you wrote a book, and the book has the same title, Shadows of the Night, How One Man Survived the Trauma of Adoption, the Snares of the Music Business, and Found His Birth Mother and Seven Sisters. Yeah. It's a big lift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, just to give you a, a sort of a thumbnail sketch, it's about my adventures and misadventures in the music business, but but the underlying theme is my adoption story or adoption trauma story, more specifically. Um, I was adopted, you know, shortly after birth. Um, and uh, my, my adoptive mother had some psychological problems and some uh, addiction problems. She was cross addicted to um, prescription drugs, um, amphetamines and barbiturates and stuff like that. I later found out this is much later. Um, so she acted very erratically. When I was around eight years old, um, I, I realized I didn't look like either of my parents and I asked her about it and she said, well, you are adopted, which makes you special. And, uh, your real mother died in childbirth and, you know, I'm, I'm special. And my, what I, I was realizing wow. that I, I had killed my own mother. And, um, and, and that just, you know, just threw me and was terrible thing and I felt incredibly guilty but yet some for some reason I didn't believe what she was telling me I, I really believed that my my real mother was actually alive and that I would meet her one day and I kept that burning in my heart I kept that alive through all of my experiences through the music business and later on when I finally settled down and I got married and 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 you know uh, my life sort of calmed down and, and became like a little more sane um through a strange turn of events, uh, after looking for my mother for a couple of years, maybe even longer, um, I actually found her and found that I also had seven sisters, all of which were in the area of South Jersey where I grew up. Two of them were in my hometown. They were like right outside of Philadelphia. I was from, from South Jersey. If you drew a line between Philadelphia and Atlantic City, my hometown, Vineland, was right in the middle of that line. So really, we were like 25 minutes, 30 minutes away. Uh, two of my sisters lived in my hometown when I discovered mm -hmm. them all. I could have tripped over them at the local grocery store. Um, and there are a lot of other coincidental uh, things that, like, it turns out my birth mother was born out of wedlock, as, as was I. And um, the man who sired her owned the music store 
uh, in my hometown where I used to go every Saturday afternoon and look for new guitars and, and stuff. And I wound up buying my first guitar there. So basically I bought my first guitar from my biological grandfather. Unbelievable. Neither of us knew. Yeah. <laughs> so throughout the times that you're feeling defeated or even making great strides in the music business, you're all the time thinking, you know, my parents, my parents, right? Yeah, because my, my adoptive family life was, was pretty rough. My mother really had some problems, so I was always longing for that sense of family, uh, that closeness. And, um, and basically, I just I kept that flame alive, and I just never gave up on, on the idea that I would find her. And, um, you know, that's what the story is really about more than anything, is just not giving up. You know, mm -hmm. tell you the truth, that's, that's, it's just, uh, that's it. I think that's what the music business is about. If you're going to succeed, you have to just never quit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Did your sisters and your mom hear the Pat Benatar song? Of course they did, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when they found out about you and you told them that was you, that must have been a strange moment. Uh, it was like a major freak out. <laughs> 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 yeah. They were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that made you happy, didn't it? It, it did. Yeah, it did. And, you know, I didn't want it to be about just that, but, you know, that was sort of the icing on the cake, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it was great. Not only do they welcome me into the family really easily uh, with no skepticism or, or resistance of any kind, but they were uh, uh, very, very proud of me almost right off the bat, you know, because, you know, mm -hmm. Here I was, I had done all this stuff and, and uh, they were like, wow, you know, this is, this is our brother. This is my son. You know, this is, it was great. It was just great. I'm super glad that it turned out in a positive way that when you found them, it was somebody that, you know, welcomed you. It, it could have gone either way. You know, it's 50, 50 that they, they would, my sister who I made first contact with one of my middle sisters would have hung up the phone, you know, mm -hmm. because I actually had to make that cold call when I found out from my caseworker, my adoption caseworker, you know, some information that, that led me to my middle sister. I had to make that cold call to her office and, and say, you know, my name is David Byron. And, uh, you know, she said, who is this? And I said, well, I have every reason to believe that I'm your brother. And uh, it could have been click, you know, or, mm -hmm. or something else. And she said, after a pregnant pause, she said, all right, go on. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah, so we, you know, we started to talk, and yeah, it was it was wild. So we can find out all the details of this in the book. Yeah, and there's there's much more in the book than what I just laid out. It's it's full of uh, twists and turns and and coincidences and and just a lot of interesting stuff that um, you know you just you just never would have accounted for happening. It's an interesting story. At least I mean, I lived it. It was interesting for me. So. Mm -hmm. I, that's why I, I really wanted to get it down in, in book form because I, I think it's it could be helpful for other people. You know, I think the you know the struggles that I went through maybe are are not that dissimilar to what other people go through. Well, D.L. Byron, it was really great talking with you. I enjoyed hearing your story. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate the opportunity of uh, telling my story and talking about the book and my life. It's it's uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 19, with D.L. Byron. 
There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider giving us a review wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.